0: Just a reminder that Andy and I are going to be in New York City attending the O'Reilly Security Conference from October 31st through November 2nd. I will post a link for tickets. I want to let you know that there is actually a new offer from O'Reilly. They call it their Buddy Pass. So now if you buy one ticket, you can get another uh, for free. It'll give you a code that you can give to a friend. I will post a link to that too. Hope to see you there. This could be a complete train wreck they usually are
1: but it, you know that makes it memorable
0: i assume that's why everybody listens because it's it's like watching nascar
1: <laughs> no no they no they, they they listen for your astute observations and witty repartee uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. it's totally not nascar <laughs> when are they going to crash and burn no it's coming Go today is Friday, October fourteenth, two thousand sixteen, and this is episode one hundred seventy-three of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight as the stuntlerg is Mr. Martin Fisher. How you doing?
1: I'm doing extremely well, Jerry. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to try out for that that replacement role, and uh, I really hope to do well tonight.
0: Well we'll We'll see how it goes, you know see how the uh, your mom jokes come out
1: <laughs> well um i i I've solicited Twitter for some feedback and it's amazing how many uh mom jokes and mom observations uh, came to me via direct message, most of them actually from Andy I, somehow
0: I'm not surprised by this <laughs> <laughs> so um actually before we get started, do you want to say anything quickly about besides uh, Atlanta?
1: Absolutely. Besides Atlanta, um, it's going to be November 12th at the Atlanta Tech Village. Unfortunately, uh, all this, all the uh, general admission tickets are sold out. But what we're going to start doing probably about two weeks from uh, the start date is I'll start reminding everybody who has a ticket that if you're not going to use it, please turn it back in so we can get recycled. So uh, if you go to Eventbrite and search on Besides Atlanta, you will find the event. Just keep checking in. Or if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at ArmorGuy. I will be tweeting out um, when I discover that there there are tickets turned in, and then it'll be sort of like a mini Schmookom thing. How fast can you get to Eventbrite and get those tickets? So it's a fantastic event. Uh, CFP is still open, I believe, um, and we just we would love to see you guys come down there on uh, November twelfth. Absolutely, I'm uh, I'm personally int- intending to be there, assuming
0: uh,
1: you know I'm not in jail or something. I, I should well, be there. Um, There are some U.S. Marshals around my place who have been asking about you, so (laughs) good luck, with. Fair
0: enough. So uh, before we get into our stories for this evening, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we expressed in this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So uh, we have a couple of good stories for this evening, and the first one comes from CNBC, and the title is, British banks keep cyber attacks under wraps to protect image and it there's really no uh, quantitative assessment of how common this is uh, but the the point is that through some interviews uh, this the story here is talking about how it's it's apparently pretty common for UK banks to not report cyber incidents to their regulator the FCA as they're uh, allegedly required to um, now it, it it's by the way, not entirely surprising to me my my good friend Bob works for a, a larger company, and uh, they experience breaches all the time and there's a lot of assessment and I suspect this is really common and probably the you know the, the, the thing that is you know coming through in this in this report here that businesses are are, are really taking an assessment an internal assessment to determine you know are they obligated to notify someone is it likely to harm someone outside of the company uh, what's the what's the you know what's the pro and the con of uh, of notification to to some external body and in particular the FCA just given the way it's characterized in the uh, the article here it sounds like it's almost voluntary right the 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 regulator seems to be pleading with Financial institutions to report breaches, so I, I, it's not very clear to me how, uh, how how much teeth the regulations have. But um, anyway, I, th- I think this is a this is an interesting perspective, and you know we've we've talked a little bit about this on the show in the past. Uh, but point is, there's a there's a whole lot more. is as, as much as we talk about breaches, there's a whole lot more that happens that we never hear about.
1: I'm with you, but I think the key thing to remember in this article is no one's alleging that any of these banks are violating the law. Um, what, what I think you're getting at, and I think you kind of you touched on it, is that disclosure above what the law mandates is a business decision, and the business is going to take that very, very seriously. There's, and there's always going to be this tension between security folks who, who believe that, hey, you should disclose – We need to be transparent and folks in senior leadership who are about, you know, about protecting the brand. They're not wanting to create liability exposure, what have you. And those people in the C-suite they're, they're paid to make those decisions. And I think as security folks, our job is to present the best possible information we can to those folks, remind them of their actual obligations. And then, um, follow what the leadership says we're going to do. I'm also on this article. I'm also kind of, when you you look at who they're interviewing, they're, they're, they're they're talking to folks and it gets down to that whole thing of how many attacks happen. Right. And they, they, they do, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's sort of that traditional, anytime you talk to an MSSP or a, or a SIM providers, that funnel slide that they always show. And, you know, there's 2 billion events a month which get filtered down to 200,000 after machine defenses before a human team cuts that down to 200 real events a month. And for those of us who've been in security operations a while, 200 real events doesn't mean 200 breaches. It means there were 200 violations of policy, 200-somethings. doesn't necessarily mean breach. And if you report these things, especially in the in the post-Yahoo, or you know, in my world, in hospital land, post anthem, the minute you report it, even if it wasn't a breach, the assumption is it was a breach, and that's going to play heavily to what leadership helps you know how they decide to report it or not. Yeah, it's it's on you to, it's on you to prove that it wasn't, I, I suppose, and then
0: you end up in a position where you have to disclose things that you don't you don't want to disclose.
1: Absolutely, because you you know like, you, we all know you can't dis, you can't prove the negative. Right. prove to you weren't hacked right
0: you know and, and they do they do point out that um this this could for instance go into a, a crazy area like you know do you have to report phishing attacks or ransomware attacks and and uh so so i think there is there's a fine line here maybe it's not so fine and uh i guess each company is 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 navigating this on their own hopefully with the Advice and counsel of of uh, both competent security people and legal counsel.
1: Absolutely, and the if the if the true goal from society is, hey, we want to know more about you know the 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 security events that are happening at companies. It's going to require regulation change, and boy, we all know how much we in security love regulation change.
0: Oh my goodness, don't we? Don't we ever? Especially here in the U.S., we love regulations. Ooh. Yeah, without them, you and I wouldn't have jobs. <laughs> That's a good point. Good point, and that kind of dovetails into our second story, which comes from Lexology dot com, and the title here is "UK ICO Issues Largest Ever Fine for Data Breach." Just for those who are not aware, the ICO is the Information Compliance Office. I'm sorry, Information Commissioner's Office in the UK. They are responsible for uh, enforcing the UK's data protection laws and regulations and uh, we we talked about on this show i guess it was probably last year sometime the company talktalk Talk had been hacked and lost uh, about 160,000 customer records and about 100 uh, sorry about 15,000 uh, bank records so for you know payment information for their customers and there's some information in here that we didn't have at the time, so I thought that was kind of interesting. They they point out, the ICO points out that uh, the, the method of attack was uh, SQL injection on a couple of websites, or they say web pages, that apparently TalkTalk Talk said they were unaware of. And uh ICO found that while TalkTalk Talk wasn't in in intentional in its uh in negligence here uh that the the reality is the exploit that were the vulnerability that was exploited was patched in two thousand twelve and this happened three years later so fairly negligent the the thing that it points out to me i mean i, I I've, there's been a lot written about talk Talk's leadership right but this is a common problem when companies are acquiring other companies and I, I guess I neglected to mention that the websites that were hacked apparently were part of an acquisitions a recent acquisitions infrastructure. And uh this is, by the way, a a real struggle for a lot of companies who are commonly acquiring uh other companies. You know, there's a there's a lot of stuff hiding out and if you don't have your hands on it, especially post acquisition where everybody's, you know, doing the, uh, you know, the, the, the musical chairs dance, you know, stuff can fall on the
1: floor. Right. I mean, one of the things that a lot of folks forget in M and a transactions, you know, you're not just acquiring their uh, financial debt, you're acquiring their technical and security debt as well. And I think you and I both have seen personally and just, you know, observationally, that's forgotten so many times. Yeah, and it's too late. But the one thing that interests me, Jerry, on this article was, um, you know, they, they talk about this have being the record fine from the Information Commissioner's Office, and it's four hundred thousand uh, pounds. And at today's exchange rate, that's under a half a million dollars. Yeah, and which is an amazingly small amount of money. Um, you know, if you look at some of the. Proposed fines that um, have been proposed for HIPAA violations that are getting into seven, almost eight figures. You look at this and go, wow, um, that's small. But you and I were talking before we started recording, you know, this general data protection regulation that kicks in in May of 2018. um, It creates a little bit more risk for organizations like TalkTalk for losing this kind of data. Yeah,
0: that's right. So uh, so uh, this by the way is uh, looming very large for a lot of global companies and a lot of companies in the in the european union the the gdpr is a uh eu wide data protection regulation that as you mentioned takes effect on may 25th 2018 and the, the teeth in it is if you are found to you know I, I, obviously there's Court proceedings and whatnot, right? But the potential fine for violating the the GDPR is four percent of your world right worldwide revenue,
1: 20 million euros, whichever is larger.
0: Right, right. So, uh, so you know, even if you're a small organization, it could be up to twenty million euros, or uh, or four percent of your revenue, which whichever one is larger. And that is a um, that's breathtaking. I mean that that this is the kind of thing that's going to drive a lot of change, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, behavior it drives. You know, for instance, does it drive uh, some companies out of the EU altogether? Uh, does it drive you know certain kinds of things to be not more? Kind of back to the last story, does this mean more things aren't going to get disclosed? It, it, it'll uh, it'll be very interesting to watch. I mean, hopefully, it has the the intended effect of improving security. I guess time will tell.
1: I think it's gonna it's gonna do a little bit of both. I mean, some organizations are gonna look at this as um, something they just you know analyze with their standard risk model and say, okay, um, it's a minimum of you know, you know well, a, a maximum that are twenty million uh, euro or four percent of our gross revenue. How much to prevent that risk do we want to spend? And hopefully that that will get people to do more in security. Some will decide um, won't ever happen to me. I'm not going to worry about it. And to your point, I think it may drive some folks who maybe don't have a very large European presence to just bail on the EU and, and take their business elsewhere. Um, It's going to be really interesting to watch in 2018 uh, to see how that works, especially in, you know, also Brexit. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Wow, just so many players in this in this in this little uh, scene that it's going to be fun to watch.
0: Yeah, it, it, the other part that I don't know about, and uh, I'm sure I'm going to learn pretty quickly about this, is uh, you know f- we we've had lots of discussions about in, in the past. The, uh, for instance, the safe harbor, uh, it's that uh, safe harbor allowance. I'm not even sure what you would call it between uh, the EU and the US. Was struck down by the EU, one of the EU courts, yeah. and I I wonder for even what what's the what the applicability is going to be for non uh, non EU companies who are receiving data through other um, you know other venues like the EU model clause, for example. So you know there are, there could be potentially let's say um, you know some some US U.S. company is performing services on behalf of a EU company and storing the data in the U.S. and they get compromised. I, I really wonder how this is going to play out. This is really, I think, going to going to have some some pretty wide ranging ripples.
1: Absolutely. If the if history is a predictor of the future, you know that the EU at least at first always tries to take a very long arm of the law approach, and they they assume they have jurisdiction until you can prove that they don't so um, it's gonna like I said, it'll be fun to watch
0: yeah but in the meantime i, I think this um the, the talk talk specific story points out you know we we as an industry need to make sure we're really on top of uh, the integration of acquired companies and then more generally I um, and I've seen this time and time again. With applications, I don't know for sure this is what happened here, right? But I see applications become orphaned quite often, and when those applications are internet facing, uh, that becomes really difficult. Now, if it's you know, if it 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 tends to be easier to detect if it's sitting out on its own server. But if you have, let's say, uh, you know, a shared internet facing web server, and you have different departments or different people managing subcomponents, those things become more difficult. And you really have to have a a pretty good governance process in place to make sure that somebody's accountable for all that stuff.
1: Absolutely, and I think this is also, um, you know, I've I've had a lot of bug bounty stuff on my brain lately, and I think this is a a potentially a use case where if you can run a bug bounty that says, look, uh, especially on the shared stuff where you may not have the governance, but you know, hey, we'll pay people to find the thing. Yeah. Will find the these folks that do bug binaries, They will find the thing you forgot was there, guaranteed. Right. uh, uh, To get a payday, and you know maybe you're a little bit embarrassed, but at least you can identify that that code or that orphaned site and go, "Wow, let's let's kill that thing." But you know, I I know you and um, you and Mr. Callet talk a lot about you know IT one on one. You got to know your inventory of your assets. Those internet-facing applications, you need to have as much control over them as you do your internal-facing servers, and and all that. It because they're an attack surface, and and you you cannot afford to forget about them.
0: Right. But it's difficult. It, it becomes it becomes an an exercise in uh, in in good management to to keep your arms around that. And I I don't I don't think it's a, something that a lot of let me say that differently. it's something that a lot of companies don't do well
1: I would agree, and it's because it requires a level of discipline across multiple silos inside of i t and shadow i t to do well and I don't care who you are or where you are that's hard
0: right right so you know i I would encourage every you know I would encourage listeners and and their organizations to think about if they're not, if they don't have a good handle on this, you know, here's a, here's a good example of how it can, you know, how it can go wrong. And there's been a lot of previous examples uh, that are similar, uh, but you know, it's, this is a I I think one of the, one of the really key fundamental things. And by the way, you know, app, inventory of applications is number one on the SANS top 20 list, or the, I guess it's the CSC top 20 list now for a reason. and, and and here's here's a good example of why. So uh so moving on to our our last story, this one comes from the NIST. And uh I'm going to I'm going to take some hell because apparently I'm supposed to say NIST and not spell it out.
1: Uh yeah, that that's correct sir. I would I was sort of yelling at my uh the radio in my car about that uh, last episode.
0: Yeah, I I I think I had about 40 emails and a bunch of tweets. Telling me that I really do not know what I'm talking about because I said NIST.
1: They harass you because they love you.
0: <laughs> I can only assume. So, uh, so the story or the title on this uh, story is: security fatigue can cause computer users to feel hopeless and act recklessly. New study suggests. So the uh, the the story here is that the NIST at NIST. Sorry, it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna take a while, guys. That NIST had been uh, working on a study of how I I assume I haven't actually read the detailed study because you have to buy it, which is awesome. Um, Anyway, evaluating I suppose how uh, how users are interacting with security controls and what they what they discovered. Apparently, they weren't actually intending to study this aspect, but they they discovered and i think in retrospect it's pretty intuitive that people are uh they get fed up they get they get as they call it security fatigue and so that you know again as a as a student of behavioral economics and cognitive psychology this is what what's called depletion right so as you uh, it, really as as you Put a person under cognitive load uh, they they become drained and they start making poor you know less and less good decisions and they fall back into in often bad habits and so the The point of this study is or at least one of the recommendations coming out of the study is that you need to make sure that you have kind of good defaults you limit the the security choices that people need to make you know one of the things that that, that I wanted to uh, to bring up on this this topic is that in this this particular study they they're really focused on security controls, but our users and, and us ourselves live and work in the context of things that are much broader than just security controls and and so it isn't just security controls that deplete us it's 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 our very the very job that we're trying to do right and and a great example that I always like to point out we all want people to pick good passwords when 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 you know when it's time to change your password however, for me at least every time the damn password you know it's time to change your password thing pops up you know when you when you go to log back into your computer and you can't get past it it's when i'm trying to do something you know for my boss and i have 15 minutes to do it and you know i think we all have this experience so what does that drive us to do it drives us to get past that control as fast as we can and often it means we're going to pick a bad password or at least not as good a password as we otherwise might have and so I guess the point is that even beyond what's in this study, my view is there's a there's a bigger context of of things that deplete us, right? Just the the deadlines of our jobs and and whatnot uh, will also drive people to
1: to make bad security decisions. So, um, do you mind if I just rant for a moment? Have at it. So, um, I don't have fancy words like depletion or cognitive to use, like like Jerry does. And, and, and Jerry's absolutely right. But I want to approach this from a different angle. And I think this is this is really a way it's, – it's an indictment almost of the security services and security product industries. Every time we encounter um, someone who wants to add a service or a product into the enterprise mix, it's almost a point of pride that they tell you about this separate screen or this separate credential. And – Here's a new process, and here's the pop-up they're going to see, and here's the validation. And in its, in, if you just look at it as a single thing, it makes perfect sense. It looks wonderful. We're getting a demonstration of the money that, that they want us to spend, and it's shiny, and it's blinky, and it makes us all feel warm and wonderful inside. The problem is we inflict that on our users through 20 or 30 different systems which we generally bypass the security people because we aren't going to get hacked. We're smart and we're special, but those people over there, they're They need to be, they they have to be protected. They're fools and idiots. And what happens is, is we have them log in, you know, provide multiple usernames and passwords to get in on the VPN. We, you know, we have them answer challenge questions and we make things so flippin' difficult that at some point they're going to just basically chuck this, you're making my life too hard. And instead of being your friend and instead of working with you inside the control space and staying inside the guardrails, you have now actively turned the person who should be your friend, who is your customer, into your enemy. And they are now going to deliberately look for the flaws and they're going to deliberately do things that will make your life a living hell. We have to stop doing this to ourselves, and we have to stop and look at these vendors and say, you need to integrate with the things I already have. The best security control, the best thing you can do should be invisible to your customers until the exception happens, until they absolutely must interact with the control. That's the only time they should see it. And if we can engineer systems that are easier for people to use, that work with the flows of how they do their job, and we get out of their way, oh my gosh, things will be so much better. And people won't you know, drop their heads and sigh when we walk into a room to talk to them about how, how we're going to help them with their project. I return the balance of my time to the host of the podcast.
0: <laughs> well Well said. So, so what do you think that says about the, um, you know, the, the security awareness, that the person is the first line of defense type of, uh, of perspective? What, what do you think it says about that?
1: I think security awareness works. I've, I've been in a couple of organizations where we created effective security awareness programs. And in one case, we actually did as close to a scientific survey of before and after behaviors that we possibly could. Was it perfect? No. Fisher's gonna fish and clicker's gonna click. Uh, I get that. But that's not the point of it. The point of it is are we at each stage along the way, and I refuse to say kill chain, but at each stage along the way, if we can knock a little bit out of a way and reduce the number of times we have to roll IR and the number of times we have to nuke something from orbit and pave it over, that's success. That's the important thing. We have to embrace the vulnerabilities that are around us, mitigate, minimize, and respond to them. That's the key. And awareness. You know, if you're saying, "Well, people are always going to click. Why do awareness?" Well, I would ask, "Why are you incorporate information security?" Um, the point is, those people who are out there in the front lines, and in my case, it's it's nurses, it's people sitting in patient access services, it's you know, the the, the it's everybody out there working with the thousands of machines that sit on my network, I want them to have some basic knowledge and be comfortable if they see something that they, that, that looks weird or doesn't sound right, that they're comfortable through awareness training to know they can call security and security is not going to yell at them. Right. If awareness training does nothing but make people not afraid of the security team, that is a huge, huge win. So I guess the, the,
0: the purpose of my question was that, it- Was and you know is you know that you know my I'm kind of down on the this the security awareness training, but that's not actually what where I'm where I'm going. I guess with respect to this particular article, I'm wondering, does does relying on our employees as that you know quote first line of defense to you know and by the way you just described us the funnel, right? Um does does, does that well, contribute to uh this security fatigue?
1: If it's done badly. Okay. I think effective awareness doesn't feel like training. It feels like information. Um it doesn't feel the worst security awareness training is those 10 PowerPoint slides you had to go to um you know the the LMS to to watch and certify that you watched them. I I despise that. Now, in some places, you have to do it for compliance reasons. But awareness, awareness done well, people want to hear the message. They're going to take it in. It's information they can use at home and at work. And it helps, hopefully, over time, changes their behavior. If it's training, especially unwanted training, yeah, you failed. Utterly and objectively, you failed.
0: Interesting. So, how do you think you, it, from your perspective, how do you structure it to be something that is interesting to them?
1: It has to fit the culture of your company, right? In the past, we've done things in the corporate cafeteria where you know, we we hand out cheap little swag and we play Jeopardy—you know, a game of Jeopardy where we ask security, you know, pull people from the audience, ask security questions, and we give out little prizes. Um, we, you know, one time we had people uh, take a, a survey, right? And we drew from that and people got um, gift cards to go to a movie theater. And it was, you know, st- stunning the return rate, the response rate we had on a survey, you know, in in quotes, which was really awareness training, right? Because it told you you selected A, you know, it was actually, it should have been B that you selected. And here's why, you know, and at the end, hey, thanks for filling out this survey, you're entered for the, you know, the AMC theater gift cards. And then afterwards we publicized everyone who said, Hey, here are the four people who won gift cards and we're going to do this again at another date. That was fun and entertaining. I, I'm sort of, I, you know, we're using the same marketing methods to get our message across that everyone else is using in sales. Cause really that's what we're doing is we're selling, we're selling security. So let's, let's sell it. Let's not inflict it. Nice.
0: Nice. So, uh, so, so just going quickly back to the, uh, to, to, the story they, they, they do. And if you watch the video, there's a little video snippet in there and the, the, the person from NIST, I forget her name is, is just actually mentions depletion in, in her discussion. The, um, the, the thing they don't mention is that you can actually counteract depletion with lemonade.
1: <laughs> oh so,
0: so, I'm, ju- I, you know, I, I'm just saying, right? That possibly lemonade may be the answer to our cybersecurity
1: problems. Um, but is it llama brand lemonade? Llama <laughs> aid. Yeah, there you go. And see, trademark. I've trademarked that already, just so you know. Um, and and it, it sounds like the perfect deal for me. I mean, I'm thinking a thousand dollars per user per year to 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 register that product well, that sounds like a deal hey i'm set this guest host is the most profitable thing i've done all year
0: <laughs> all right any uh any any other comments on the on that story
1: not on that one sir all
0: right well i think that's it anything else that you wanted to uh to bring up and well, while you're while you have the ear of the uh the, the 87 listeners of defensive security
1: yeah, well, for for those of you who are attempting to reach to your streaming device and change the channel, just hang on for a few seconds. Um, real quick, a shout out to Andy and Emily. Congratulations on a fantastic, the coolest wedding I've ever been to. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, I really appreciate, uh, Jerry, you giving me a chance to be here. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. And by the way, that was, uh, just to
0: echo what you said, that was a really cool wedding and it uh, was awesome to be part of it. And, uh, you know, no Andy's not a bachelor anymore, so that's I, kinda did weird. You,
1: did you notice all those women who were hanging out like right at the gate at the flight museum who were just like sobbing? It was sad. It was so sad. And there was even more guys who were sobbing and I was trying to figure out like Emily's got a much bigger fan club than Andy does.
0: Yes. Yes. By the way, she's a heck of a singer. Yes, uh, she is. That was uh that was <laughs> incredible, so uh, anyhow, thank you very much for being here. I uh, I I can't thank you enough. This was awesome. Appreciate your time.
1: Glad to be here. Do it anytime you need me.
0: All right, and uh, with that, we will uh, we'll call it a show. Uh, you can find links to the show to all the the stories we talked about tonight on our show notes at www.defensivesecurity.org. I'll actually put a link to the B sides Atlanta um, uh, registration page, and uh, you can follow martin at armor guy on twitter you can follow me uh, on twitter at malicious link and with that uh, me and who knows who will talk to you again next week thanks a lot